Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, Matt, when I first got to Wall Street in the mid-80s, you know, insider trading was a big thing. It was all over the headlines. Names like Ivan Bosky, Dennis Levine, movies Milken. like Wall Street. Um, apparently, it is still a thing. Our next guest is focused on it. Caroline Crenshaw. She's a commissioner at the Securities and Exchange Commission based in Washington, D.C. Uh, she's out with a Bloomberg Opinion column entitled, Insider Trading Loopholes Need to Be Closed. Caroline, thanks so much for joining us here. We'd love to get your thoughts on kind of where you think the state of insider trading and enforcement of insider trading rules are right now. Yeah, good morning. It's great to be here. Uh, Before I start, I do have to say uh, quickly that the views I express today are my own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the commission, uh, the the staff, or my fellow commissioners. but as to your your question, you know, I I think um, you know insider something insider trading is something we always take seriously. Um, it, it but um, right, you know, recent evidence uh, suggests that some of the rules designed uh, to make sure that uh, corporate ex- executives uh, who always have insider uh, int- information or material non-public information. Um, you know, sometimes uh, they they also are paid in stock, uh, and, and and to ensure that they are not uh, you know trading their stocks while they have insider information. The SEC established about 20 years ago uh, a rule called 10b51, and this rule. Uh, basically puts in place a, a schedule, a fixed schedule for them to make trades so that they're not trading on insider information. But recently, It makes sense, right? Because they get – a lot of these um, men and women get a, a huge portion of their pay in stock. So in order to live the life of a respectable chief executive, um, <laughs> you've got you've to sell the stock occasionally to pay for your stuff. Um, but I guess the, the, the problem you found is that they set up these schedules – commissioner to sell the stock um, and then they can cancel the sale or delay the sale uh, to, to, to better position themselves around an event that they know is coming up. That's exactly right. Um, the recent academic evidence, uh, some by my co-author, Daniel Taylor out of Wharton Business School, um, has shown um, that there are, there are lots of red flags with these plans um, and that they can be modified, uh, they can be canceled, uh, and that could allow executives to time trades uh, and thus perhaps be trading on insider information ahead of other investors or the rest of the market. So, Caroline, just give us a sense of um, the state of insider trading today. How prevalent is it? Um, has the SEC and other regulators um, maybe learned some things from back from those the 1980s that I that I referenced? You know, I, I think um, it's always something we are looking at. Um, you know, I think um, there's always going to be insider trading. There's always going to be, um, you know, folks who, who are inclined to break the rules. That's why we have an enforcement program. Um, they're actively looking at this. But I think um, to to the degree um, we want to modernize the rules and, and help put stricter parameters in place, uh, these 10B51 plans are an area that I think we can really uh, look to modernize and provide uh, much clearer rules of the road. Road, uh, that will help lead to um, uh, perhaps level, more level playing field and promote uh, fair and efficient markets, which is you know, what the SEC is, is uh, always thinking about. 
Have you ever heard anybody, like on a stakeout or something, say, Blue Horseshoe loves Anacott Steel? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> because that's a tip-off, I'm just telling you. No, seriously, um, Caroline... Do you worry on the other side at all, on the short side? Because that's been brought up a lot in, well, the court of public opinion and in front of Congress as well. Short sellers have been uh, attacked and um, maybe there have been implications that maybe they even band together to bring companies down. Well, obviously, in the wake of the activity area in January, we're, we're looking at that behavior. We're, we're looking at the, the consequences. We're looking at what happened there. And I think that's something we, we are closely looking at, again, to make sure that to the degree we need changes in the market, to the degree we need to modernize our rules, um, that we're doing so. Uh, you know, again, it's the, the SEC's mission to promote fair, orderly, and efficient markets. And I want to make sure we're preventing a two-tiered market, uh, one where insiders can trade and, and one where everyone else can trade. And I think this is another area that we can look at uh, along with um, some of the changes uh, perhaps that we're looking at after the January activity to, again, to promote this fair and efficient market. So what's the political support or pressure or environment for toughening up potentially insider trading rules? Um, Caroline, just give us a sense of kind of what's, what's the mood within Washington? You know, I think we always want to make sure the markets are fair and efficient. Um, you know, there is a, a Preet Bharara commission that's that's looking at this. Um, I think there, there's always there's always interest in in making sure that we have the tools we need uh, to to ensure that the markets are level and, and that the playing fields uh, are as they should be for both the market participants and investors. You know, in the last couple of days, we've been talking a lot about um, efficiency improvements that could be wrought out of the IRS, for example. Um, people have been telling us if you give for every extra dollar you give them, they could go out and collect five more. Do you feel the same is true with funding at the SEC? If you had more funding, could you bust more inside traders? I think uh, our enforcement division could always do more. Our whole agency could always do more uh, with more funding. We do have limited resources, uh, and that results in, you know, often uh, trying to decide what cases over time are, are going to be the most effective, have the most market impact. Um, but we're always out there. We're always making sure that um, we're, we're using those uh, limited resources to the degree we can uh, to bring insider trading cases, to bring fraud cases, to bring um, the cases that will help ensure um, that the that investors and the markets are protected appropriately. Caroline, what about politicians who engage in trading maybe ahead of legislation or after receiving classified information? That seemed to have been a thing before the, the pandemic really hit and, and the market crashed. Is that a, a big issue? Uh, you know, it's certainly it's certainly gotten a lot of attention. Um, I, I know there was so, some investigations, uh, you know, that 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 were being talked about in the news. Uh, I think uh, to the degree in individuals are trading with information uh, that the rest of the investors, that the rest of the market doesn't have, uh, there, there's always going to be uh, questions around that and, and whether that's promoting uh, market confidence effectively um, and whether that's going to lead to problems. So I think that's something that, that we are always looking at um, and that, that everyone should always be looking at to make sure that you know individuals with insider information are trading uh, at the same time as, as everybody else and with the All same right. information as everybody else. Commissioner, thanks so much for joining us. Really fascinating column, I have to say. Caroline Crenshaw wrote with Daniel Taylor a great piece, and I recommend if anybody, um, well, anybody with access to the Bloomberg, go ahead and uh, search Caroline Crenshaw and you'll find it. I did not uh, know about what seems like a pretty simple loophole. And, Paul, I think it's... Um, 
it's the kind of thing that, well, this is what these people are doing. This is what they're they're up there for, right? They got to put a stop to this so that markets yep. can be more efficient for everybody else, including you and me. So, Caroline Crenshaw, thanks very much for your time and your service. This is Bloomberg. Boy, a busy, busy week in terms of economic data. We had retail sales, manufacturing data today. We've got market moving news tomorrow with uh, potentially with the Fed and what Jay Powell will say. What a great time it is then to speak to our next guest, Constance Hunter. She's the chief economist at KPMG. She joins us. Constance, thanks so much for your time here. Let's start with some of the economic data points we got today. Retail sales uh, and manufacturing activity came in uh, below expectations a lot of folks are just saying, hey, it's an aberration. We had a really bad weather across much of the country in February. Is that your call as well? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's two things as far as the retail sales um, impacting the noise. So the first, of course, is the weather, as you mentioned. And the second is the uh, yo-yo effect of stimulus checks that got spent in January. So, of course, the January month over month was up 76 and we just saw a pullback from that on a month-over-month month basis for February down 3%. And, of course, the weather didn't help that. Um, but when we look at the year-over-year, year, February is still up 6.3% for retail sales. And then for manufacturing, of course, it was very impacted by the weather. And it's always good to, to look at these data on a three-month moving average just to yeah. get a better sense of the trend when you have some noisy factors like weather and stimulus checks in there. First of all, I want to say hello, Constance. Matt Miller here hey, out Matt. of Berlin. It's Great been a long time, but uh, I want you to know that Paul and I were invited to Camp Kotak, so we may see you <laughs> next oh, year. That would be fabulous. I hope you come. Um, you come fishing, and I hope we're all we're if you know if mask this, free. If you believe we're, we're all going to be vaccinated, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, we, we hope so too. Me and Paul are lined up for the AstraZeneca <laughs> shot, so. Just as a, a public service announcement, we'll take it. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, inflation, of course. It's the hottest debate right now. And a, a listener earlier in the program wrote a great question to me. He says, where does the 10-year go if we see a Minard, Rosenberg, or Tepper scenario, i.e. short-lived inflation, a short, sharp shock, as uh, uh, that then comes down as all the street research maybe has it wrong? What do you think about that? So basically, the idea is that we would have a short, sharp shock due to base effects, I assume. Mm -hmm. And then basically saying the street is wrong. We're not going to we're not going to get anywhere close to the two percent the Fed is forecasting or even the slightly above two percent. But then inflation year over year starts to fall once we get past that shock. Is that the question? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, Scott Miner told us a couple of weeks ago, he thinks in this scenario, the 10 year could go negative. It's obviously an outlier call. But um, I was reading some research from an economist last year who said, get ready for the Great Depression. Now, we didn't have that, I was thinking to myself <laughs> this morning, yet. Right? I mean, right. maybe it could go, well, maybe it could all go, I don't know a, a, a well, nice it, way of saying what I was going to say, but maybe south, it could go all go south. bad. It could all yeah. go south. Yes. Um, it could. I, I, I would never want to rule out um, the possibility we have a shock or a black swan event, or let's look at some of these mutated effects from the virus. Look at Italy is, has reshut itself down. This, this virus, as I said in the beginning, is very pernicious, and it just continues to prove to be more and more pernicious. So certainly we could have additional adverse economic shocks 
that would would push us to lower consumption, which would push us to lower inflation. But let's think about what causes inflation or deflation, right? There's a bunch of factors. There's overall the demand level is the most important. Um, And then what influences the demand level, the level of employment, wages, um, uh, and in this case, income, right? So we're seeing income to households that's not from wages, it's from government uh, supplemental income, but it's still income that's going to influence demand. And so it's hard for me to see that scenario playing out given the current course of events, but given a shock. If we were to have a severe negative shock on top of what we've just experienced, yeah, maybe we could go negative on the 10-year. It wouldn't be my base call. Hmm. All right, Constance. So given that backdrop, what do you expect uh, to hear from Fed Chairman Jay Powell tomorrow? So I expect him to talk a lot about sort of what are the transitory factors and how do they look through that. And the real question is going to be, how clearly does one communicate or does he communicate this very technical information to the market? Now, there's a good swath of the market that's already very well read in on that, but he's communicating to the market participants and the public at large. And so he needs to communicate that, yes, we're going to see an increase in demand, that, yes, we're going to have some supply bottlenecks that push up prices for goods, that, yes, on the year-over-year print, we're going to see higher inflation numbers through the summer. But that as we get more and more people vaccinated, those supply bottlenecks will dissipate. We're not at product, uh, pro, I'm sorry, we're not at industrial production levels that would suggest we're out of room to add production once people are vaccinated. So he needs to explain very clearly why the Fed believes this is transitory. All right, Constance, next time I see you, hopefully we have fishing rods. Well, actually, <laughs> now that I think about it, now, I'm back in U.S. hours now, so I hope I can get you booked back on on my television program so I'll see you before I would love to be back. Uh, good. I'm going to have a producer call you. I'll see you um, then very soon uh, via satellite. But next time me and Paul see you, we'll be wearing vests with flies all over the pockets. <laughs> and, you'll have, and don't forget, we have to ship cases of wine up there. So we'll be fishing with, with wine or beer or the beverage of your choice. Yeah. Well, I'll be drinking wine or beer while you guys are fishing is probably how it really is going to work out. Constance Hunter is the chief economist at KPMG. Let me bring in uh, John Butler right now. He's a senior telecom analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And John, um, 5G has been, I guess the idea has long been there, but we've now heard a a swathe of people. A swath? A swathe. A swath of people? I think swath. We've heard a slew of people (laughs) uh, talk about getting into it, um, including uh, Mark Andy from... uh, um, What's Tom Barrick's shop called that Mark Colony Capital? Colony Capital. Um, This is, he says, where you're going to see the infrastructure build out in 5G. Do you agree, John? Yes. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this, Matt. I would liken it to what the world looked like after iPhone versus what it looked like before the iPhone was introduced. Got it. I think it's going to have that kind of powerful change. But I don't think it's going to happen in one year. It's going to take time. And, um, you know, we're in literally like the first inning of the rollout here. You know, the carriers have sort of set foundational coverage in the U.S., but that foundational coverage doesn't have the kind of spectrum you need to really offer 5G's full feature set or full potential, if you will. 
So fast forward two years, three years, I think we're going to see profound changes. Man, I'm getting that psyched. If I were to... <laughs> that you know yeah, what? I got to tell you, uh, I got to tell you, John. I was so when I first started working as a young squid here at Bloomberg News in Frankfurt, my job was to cover the UMTS auctions. So I was you know, covering these 3G auctions at a time when 3G was like the great pie in the sky. And it took me a while to realize what the result of 3G was. It really was iPhone. That's what made iPhone possible. And then they jumped, of course, to 4G with their next model. But uh, that was a massive shift, a tectonic shift, as Tom would say. Well, it was. I mean, what 3G gave us texting and limited web access. 4G gave us full web access in the palm of our hand, plus streaming video. 5G for the consumer, for you and me, is going to provide even higher speeds. 4K video, interactive gaming, augmented reality, ultimately. But I think the bigger changes are going to be on the enterprise side for businesses. Because literally 5G can place a lot of wires in your life. So when I was talking to AT&T the other day and they said, you know, we're doing tests in hospitals because hospitals have wires everywhere. Doctors need to have patient information on the move. And um, so they're putting 5G in a private network in these hospitals where you can literally cut the cord on everything. So uh, therein lies the biggest potential, I think, for 5G in that enterprise sector. And that's great news for the carriers because a lot of those services are very high margin. Hey, John, I see, you know, just in the last couple of days, the big carriers, Verizon, T-Mobile, tapping the bond markets for more billions of dollars here. What are they raising the money for? What are they using it for? So, you know, I'll start with this. The C-band auction was way more expensive for the carriers than anyone anticipated. That's the bad news. I think the good news is that spectrum can be used not only for 5G, but 6G and 7G. I mean, those licenses have long lives to them. Think of them almost as a life lease. And so it's going to be very costly up front. I think even they were surprised at how much they had to spend. So in the end, you're seeing them raise a lot of debt to meet those payments, which are all due this month. And then over time, the hope is with some of them to pay off debt with obviously excess free cash flow, but also some asset sales in the case of AT&T. And they're sort of instituting this shrink-to-grow strategy, and so I think they can monetize some of the assets that don't make sense, like AT&T Latin America, uh, the Brio satellite business in Latin America, and who knows, maybe even Turner eventually. I've been thinking that might be no, something. No, that was the heart of Time Warner. <laughs> it just it dawned on me. Time Warner. It just dawned on me that when uh, – you know, when Deutsche Telekom bought VoiceStream, I flew out to Seattle with Ron Summer, and he threw the first pitch out of the Mariners game. Paul, were you there? Were we both there? I don't think so. <laughs> ah, I didn't know if you were in on the deal, because this is no. your wheelhouse, right? Yeah, we did a bunch of deals there, and, and John's kind of the, the the expert on, on kind of how telecom has evolved and kind of what is our, our future here with 5G. So, John, is it... it 
you know, if I were an investor, I mean, can I gauge out who might be a winner and a loser here? If I want to play 5G, because that's what I hear a lot from all the tech and telecom folks is all about 5G. How do I play it as an investor? So I always look for leadership, right? And I look for leadership and growth in what really traditionally has been a non-growth sector. But if you look back over the past 10 years, T-Mobile has done great, right? And they were the growth name in the segment. But Verizon was the one that really dominated in terms of being the early mover in 4G and then leading over the next 10 years. And their reward was higher margins than the other carriers. Right. I think T-Mobile is now in that position right now on both fronts. I think they're going to continue to outgrow AT&T and Verizon and I think their margins are going to expand over okay. time as they get the technology rolled out. Interesting, as always, big tech telecom. John Butler, senior telecom analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We appreciate that. We're going to talk about FX, which already was, uh, you know, one of the biggest markets in the world and absolutely fascinating. But it could be set to get even better. At least that's what our next guest says. Vincent Deloire joins us, global macro strategist for Stonex. Vincent, um, you know, Ray Dalio was out uh, overnight talking about um, the dollar and how he wants to stay away from assets connected to that as all the stimulus goes into the economy and taxes are ready to get raised. And he was even talking about um, countries limiting capital movements. What do you think? Well, um, it's it's possible. I think at the end of the day, we go back to um, what's called the impossible trinity. That in a, um, if you have the free capital movements, uh, you have to either target the exchange rate uh, or the interest rate uh, in a country. Uh, and it seems to me that um, as we recover from the global pandemic, um, no central bank in the world is able or willing to let go of its interest rate, to accept a move in interest rates that would be viewed as as harmful to the economy. Uh, So there's only two consequences from that. Um, The one that I expect, i.e. we tolerate a much higher level of currency volatility uh, because we cannot use uh, movements in the interest rate to cushion that currency volatility, or uh, the one that Ray Dalio is suggesting, uh, which is eventually imposing capital controls, which may indeed be possible, but I I would expect that to come later. Uh, the first thing that I expect to see is what I call the global macro disorder, the global monetary disorder, where you see a lot more currency volatility, a new regime, very much like the 70s, where you see huge swings in currency volatility because central banks have to focus on their domestic constituencies instead of trying to provide stability to the global economy. All right. So, Vincent, when I started on Wall Street, the every firm I worked at, they had a whole floor dedicated to trading currencies. Talk to me about the liquidity in the global FX markets here. Um, Is it enough to deal with what you call uh, great monetary disorder, or is that also a concern? On on the biggest pair, uh, currency pairs, for sure. I mean, it is, you know, the most liquid market in the world, open 24-7. So, no, I don't think there's... I mean, maybe on the, you know, kind of a small emerging current market currencies, of course, big flows will impact uh, the market. But on the bigger one, um, no, it will be uh, it will be very exciting. I think as um, as we see traditional assets are now being priced 
beyond perfection, right? I mean, you 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 have to expect negative returns on equities. Uh, you know, you're going to get negative returns on at least you know 15 trillions of bonds that have a, a negative a negative yield. So the world of currency, which is effectively a zero sum game, uh, you know, if one goes up, the other goes down, actually becomes the most exciting game in town. So I expect more liquidity and, and more excitement. I think that over the next decade. Uh, the big fortunes will be made in the currency market. I mean, you can think of the year of you know Soros and Druckenmiller as, as coming back. Yeah, except for now they're going to be out there buying NFTs of Beeple artworks. You know, the, the massive fortunes uh, that are sort of being wasted on the internet seem to be coming from crypto. What's your view of the digital currencies? Uh, this is a hard one. I... Um, uh, it's a hard question, uh, Vincent, but it's one that, you know, everyone's got to contend with this question now. Even people who don't want to talk about it, from Jamie Dimon to Howard Marks, they have to embrace this question. I mean, obviously, there is an element of it that's a, that's a bubble. Um, one thing that um, seems clear to me is that the more the sector grows, the bigger threat it becomes for um governments really i mean if you give people the ability to transact outside the banking sector without supervision uh you're really um taking shipping off an essential element of sovereignty like the you know the ability of governments to issue currency and, and monitor transaction um and i i think the the next battle here is going to be between governments and, and crypto uh because i don't think really governments can function uh if um and I mean, I'm not making a moral case here. I have a lot of sympathy for, for what crypto is trying to do. Uh, but I don't think that governments are um, willing to let that happen. I mean, it was a cool experiment. I think at the beginning, it, it grew in kind of a, a dark hole. Regulators were not paying attention. The, the technology was exciting. It, but now it's getting so big that uh, I think you'll see a lot more current, uh, a lot more government interventions. And that could be maybe the what ultimately ends the what, mm. what is... A very interesting and, 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 and beautiful experiment. Vincent, uh, about 30 seconds left. As the world reopens here, what's the trade that makes the most sense to you? Um, well, a lot, I like to say a lot of cash and very few good ideas. <laughs> uh, so m most of the reopened trades, at least in the U.S., I think have been played and overplayed. I mean, you look at Russell, uh, Russell 2000, small cap value, all that stuff. It has rallied so much that it's hard to see much shoes left. Uh, the only places where you could find some of that juice, I think, is, is uh, maybe Europe. And I like Latin, I like Latin American currencies. You see a huge disconnect between the performance of Latin American currencies and, and the performance of their, their main exports. I mean, the Brazilian real versus the oil prices, Chilean peso versus copper. Um, and, and over time, uh, these are commodity economies. So it's very unlikely that divergence uh, remains. Right. So I would expect um, the, these two strengthen. Right. Hey, Vincent, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Vincent Deluard, global macro strategist for StoneX. They're based in San Francisco, uh, talking to us about the global FX markets, the global currency markets, suggesting maybe EM, particularly Latin America, might be some places to find value. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.